I'm going to hand over now then to Danny Crooks, who said is speaking on the topic of God is generous as part of our God who is good series. So over to Danny. Right, well, thanks for coming out tonight uh, and for, as we continue our series, exploring the character of God. God's character has often been misrepresented in the media by theologians and uh, in, in some ways by distorting things and not taking a balanced view of God's character. Now, I'm just praying that the PowerPoint presentation will become available. <clears throat> but tonight our subject is God is generous. Now, if you have an authorized version of the New Testament, you will not find the word generosity in that. Uh, there are many other words that it used to communicate the same idea. It talks about God being abundant, which is like overflowing in, in what he gives. It talks about God's grace, uh, giving people what they don't deserve. We read several times about the gift of God. Uh, rather than having to pay for something, God gives it as a free gift. And all those different pictures communicate the idea of God being generous in himself. Not so much a decision that he takes, but it's just part of his instinctive character that he is generous. I'm still praying hard. Now, before I get into any theological concepts of what generosity might mean, uh, let me give you one or two examples from everyday life where we see generosity or where we don't. First one, if you can remember to Christmas dinners, uh, I remember uh, here at the church when the senior members were being uh, fed a sumptuous Christmas dinner. Uh, we had all eaten uh, turkey, roast potatoes and everything until we were absolutely full. And then uh, it was Roberta or Doris, the ladies who were serving it, came round with a huge bowl of roast potatoes and says, would you like any more? And time and time again, particularly the men would have said, no thanks, I'm absolutely full. I couldn't take any more. Are you sure? I'm quite sure I wouldn't take any more. And she gave him three anyway. You might say, well, was it wasted, given that it wasn't likely to be able to finish it? Well, no, because the whole purpose of it was like evidence of the love that she and the church in general showed uh, to that particular person. So it wasn't wasted. The food itself was only a symbol, uh, but it was the generosity with which it was given that had a real message in it. Second example is if you've ever met someone who, who gives you enough, but no more. I remember once I had to go down to Dublin to, to give a talk. They had invited me to do it. And uh, they said, don't worry, we'll cover your expenses. So when I got there, the, the host, he said, you know, there's no, no problem with your expenses. Talk to our treasurer there. And uh, so I went to him and he said, uh, how many miles did you travel? I hadn't looked at the mileometer, but I thought Belfast to Dublin, 100 miles. 
That's what it used to be when I was young. I assumed it still was. Uh, so I said 100 miles. But he said, do you not live in the south of Belfast? He says, that's not so far. And so he got out onto Google Maps. He says, that's 97.6 miles. And so he did his calculation, and he gave me the expenses for 96, 97.6 miles. Now, he was right. He was just. But he gave me what was right, but nothing more. That's an example, it's maybe an example of justice, but it's not an example of generosity. A third example, sometimes generosity can produce negative consequences. I remember a Christian lady who lost her husband, and she was a widow, and some of her Christian friends uh, were very generous in giving her some uh, financial support. And it seemed to awaken something in her that the sympathy that she got, which uh, led to giving gifts, uh, appealed to something. It seemed to awaken almost a greed within her. And she started, everybody she met, she told them about the terrible difficulty that she was in and the, uh, you know, how she was struggling to make ends meet. And uh, it seemed to create something in her or to awaken something in her, a greed, a dependency, which wasn't good. And sometimes generosity can produce or awaken something in people which is not good. It can sometimes create a dependency, which is not what you really want. So generosity, if you're going to be generous, you do also have to be wise and careful. So to, uh, to now apply that to what the Bible says about the character of God, what I discovered was that all the examples that I thought of that described God's generosity were found in the parables that the Lord Jesus told. So I'm going to pick three parables where the Lord is basically communicating something of the generosity of the Father and what happens. The first one that came to my mind was the story of the prodigal son. You remember the son whose father was a very wealthy businessman. The son thought that the whole purpose of having a business was to support your, his lifestyle. But his father didn't, uh, didn't do that with the son. And so the son said, I want it now. I want my inheritance now. And so the son uh, took his inheritance, went to a far country and squandered it, and then ended up having to work at a really menial job feeding pigs. And as he was hungry, his mind went back to how his father organized his household. Strangely, he didn't remember how his father treated him. He remembered how his father treated his employees, his hired servants. He says, I remember that my father, as well as paying them their wages, he provided them with their meals. And when he was providing them with meals, he gave them not just enough food, but he used these words. He says, my father's hired servants have food to spare. In other words, the father gave them more than they wanted. 
And just as I mentioned in that previous example of the Christmas dinner, why did the father give them more? It was an expression of his generosity. And you might say, but that food was going to be wasted. Far more economical, far better for the environment, just to measure out exactly what they could eat and give them that and no more. But that would not have sent the message that his father wanted to send to his employees. And that had a real impact on his son. That his son remembered that his father was generous, not just to his sons, but to all his employees. And that was one thing about the character of God. That God, when he gives, he gives much more than is necessary. If you say, but some of it might be wasted, it's not wasted. Because the whole purpose of God giving more uh, lavishly, it's not that it will all be consumed or used. It's what the message that it sends out. Now, let me just mention one particular doctrine which, this con which seems to ignore this aspect of God's character. There are some people who say that when Christ died for the sins of the world, he died for all the sins of people, of only those who are going to be saved. Because any more would have been a waste. So when Christ suffered, they say, he suffered, for, he took the sins only of those that he knew would end up in heaven and end up forgiven. He didn't do any more because if he suffered more than that, then that would be a waste of his suffering. And what do you think about that? Is that in keeping with God's character, with his generosity? Well, there's a verse that we looked at briefly last week from 1 John chapter 2 that says this about the Lord Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ took the punishment of all the sin of all the world, even of people who ultimately reject him. He still took the punishment for their sin. That is how generous it is. God, Christ was not like an accountant that counted the number of people who were going to be saved, calculated how many sins, uh, sort of 300,065 for that one and so on, and added them all up and said to his father, well, punish me just for those. No, God laid on him the iniquity of us all, of the entire world. God forgives with extreme generosity to those who will receive it. This is what we uh, read in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now just look at the, the whole uh, impact of those words, the overflowing, outpouring of generosity when it comes to forgive. Now, some Christians worry whenever they sin, have they reached the limits of God's forgiveness? Particularly when they do commit the same sin over and over again. Perhaps they're captured in some habit 
or addiction. They struggle, they do their best to try to break it, but they find themselves committing the same sin over and over again. And they say, well, I understand that God would be patient for maybe two or three times, but surely there comes a point when we reach the limits of God's forgiveness. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation and that thought has gone through your mind and you wonder, am I a Christian at all? Well, this was a question that Peter, the Apostle Peter, had for the Lord. It wasn't about God forgiving him. It was about him forgiving his brother. He says, my brother keeps committing the same sin against me. The first time or two, I find it easy to forgive him but he keeps on doing it. How many times should I forgive him? Should I go as far as seven? And if he keeps doing it after that, I'm sorry, that's us finished. Do you remember what the Lord replied? He says, seven is not the limit. He says, think more in terms of 70 times seven, 490 times, by which time, of course, Peter would have lost count. But what the Lord was saying is, look, if you're going to forgive someone, there, is no, there should be no limit to it. And to illustrate that, the, the point that the Lord then immediately moved on to was to tell the second parable that we're going to, even if the computer is reluctant to go on to it. But this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, there was a, a, a very wealthy uh, master who had a servant who was supposed to look after his master's money. And he owed a vast, he says that he owed a vast amount. Uh, I think it was something like 10,000 talents. Now, if you convert that, just using the, the footnote in the NIV of how much a talent was, it comes out at four billion pounds. Now, that's some debt to run up. He must have been the sort of financial advisor or the investment manager of his owner. And he had perhaps invested all, nearly all his master's money in what looked a very attractive uh, investment opportunity, and it went bust. But whatever it was, he owed the master this extreme amount, and the Lord deliberately chooses this extreme amount. But just think of that. Uh, four billion pounds he owed. The master said, as, as was normal in such a case, even up to the times uh, Charles Dickens wrote about, says, well, put him, uh, sell his wife and children, sell them into service so they can work and start to pay off uh, some of the, the debt. Sell everything that he's got. Now, of course, that would only be a drop in the ocean. But nevertheless, the man was brokenhearted and he pleaded with the master for more time. How he ever thought he could get back four billion, I, I don't know. But it says that the master was filled with pity and forgave him completely, the whole debt. Imagine wiping off a debt of four billion. That was generous. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he had other money too. But to imagine how someone could wipe out that, uh, just forget that debt uh, and wipe it out. How do you think that servant felt? Well, I'm sure he was relieved. I'm sure his wife and children were relieved too. But then the first thing he did was when he went out, heaving a sigh of relief, he saw another lower servant 
who owed him, the first servant, a mere 10,000 pounds. Now, you would have thought that he would have said, well, forget about it. But no. In fact, he became quite violent. He shook him and said, now, you've got to pay me what you owe me. Otherwise, you'll be thrown into prison and, you know, you'll be treated the way debtors are always treated. The man pleaded for more time. The first servant said, no, you've got to pay me. When the master heard about this, he had his first servant rearrested. He rescinded the forgiveness, at least he, uh, he said that's what he was doing, and said, right, put him into jail, sell his wife and children, and the story ends there. But it ends with these words of the Lord Jesus, very serious words. He said, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, what does this tell us about God? Well, we can see that this master was extremely generous when it came to forgiving, but he had a deeper objective. And his objective was not simply to give people peace by having their debts wiped out. His objective was to turn people into generous, forgiving people. That was his whole objective in forgiving this first servant that vast debt. It was to make him be generous and forgiving. And when he saw that it had not worked, uh, he said, we'll have to go through this again. Uh, now, ultimately, I dare say, although the Lord didn't complete the story, the, the person, the first servant, saw sense and did um, become generous himself. But it does illustrate the key point that God's generosity should make us generous. His generosity is not simply a rush of blood to the head, as it were, a feeling of great love that overcomes him, and so that he just uh, pours out his love. He does it with wisdom, with intense wisdom, but with a specific objective, and that is to transform people into generous people. Some of you may remember the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a far from generous man, a man whose job was to take money from people. But he encountered the Lord Jesus just very briefly from being up a tree. The Lord Jesus said to him, I want to come into your home today. Uh, I want to have a meal with you. And that transformed him. His very first words were these, half of my goods I give to the poor. Nobody had asked him to do that. The Lord Jesus hadn't asked him to do that. But such was the transformation in his life, in being accepted by the Lord Jesus, that it transformed in him into having the same heart as the Lord Jesus had, a generous heart that gave to the poor. And he didn't give until it hurt. He wanted to do it. He did it spontaneously, but he did it um, with wisdom too. So Zacchaeus is someone, an example of someone who received God's generous offer through the Lord Jesus, and it transformed him into someone who was generous. Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, talks about a particular church in Macedonia, the region where the church at Philippi was, 
the local people were very poor. If you weren't a Roman citizen, you were a second-class citizen. You had most menial jobs like jailers and so on. And these people were really poor. But they wanted to help Paul. They wanted to support him in his ministry. And so they got together a little gift. They sent someone with it and gave it to Paul. Now, it probably wasn't very much. Paul probably could have got that same amount from uh, one of his wealthy friends um, at the drop of a hat. But what Paul saw was the utter generosity that had sprung up and welled over uh, from their hearts. And he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, Paul is being smart here because there was a, a, a collection being gathered for the church in Jerusalem, and many of the Gentile churches wanted to contribute to that. And many of them had contributed, but the church at Corinth, well, they talked about it, but they never did anything about it. They, uh, well, to call them a bit mean uh, is not quite how the scripture describes it. But Paul is doing his best to try to lever them into being generous. He doesn't command them because if you command someone to be generous, it's not generosity, it's obedience. And Paul deliberately does not tell them to do this. But he says, here's an opportunity for you. And very uh, skillfully, he says, you know, he doesn't say, I want you to give. He says, let me tell you about these poor Christians, the ones that the Corinthians would have looked down on, these poor people. And he talks and praises them for their extreme generosity and just leaves that with them. It's a good way of motivating people to be generous, to praise somebody else who's been generous, particularly someone that they might look down on. But it shows he's, Paul is shining a light on what God really values and indeed what God expects in those who have accepted his forgiveness. Now, let's move on to the third parable, which is quite a complex uh, and difficult parable in some ways. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now, just to, uh, to set the scene, in those days, if you were a laborer or a farm worker, the working day was from six in the morning to six in the evening. Okay, no eight-hour days, but just basically every hour of daylight. That's what it was. And it was supposed to be a bit like strawberry picking, that if a job, if the grapes needed to be picked from the vineyard, you went to the local labor exchange and found the people who were looking for a job and you gave them a job. So that's, that's what happened. So first thing in the morning, the owner of the vineyard himself, he didn't send his foreman, although he had a foreman, He's, he went himself to the marketplace where people queued up for work, and he, sorry, if you could go on to the, yeah, that's good. And the, the story that the Lord tells is very carefully uh, crafted. It says, for the kingdom of heaven, like this, he says, a landowner who went out early in the morning, which would have been at 6 a.m., to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed, he agreed to pay them a denarius, that was a, a Roman coin, for the day 
and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius was a day's wage, probably in taking the minimum wage, uh, current minimum wage, 12 hours, it comes out about 100 pounds. So he agreed that price in advance. But then, three hours later, about nine in the morning, it says that uh, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So they hadn't been able to get work. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. Notice what he says, whatever is right. He doesn't say, I'll give you 75 pounds uh, because uh, you've missed three hours already. He says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And so um, they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Now, you might say, well, why did he keep going out? Was the job bigger than he realized? Well, he was obviously a smart man and uh, knew what it needed. And I think the first time he went out, he had all the workers that he needed. But what this tells us was, even going out at three in the afternoon with only three hours to go, he wasn't, so, he wasn't concerned about himself getting the most out of the workers. He was concerned about these men who wanted to work but didn't have the opportunity. He had more workers on his vineyard than, than he needed, but he was concerned about them. He personally went out, even at three o'clock in the afternoon with only three hours to go, and said, and do you need a job? And the question he asked them then, in fact, he went out two hours later uh, the, at five in the afternoon. He went out and found others still standing around. This is, these are the words of the Lord Jesus. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. Notice that they didn't say, because we slept in, or, well, <clears throat> we wanted to take the morning off, and we've just turned up now. He didn't say, well, we've, uh, we had another part-time job, and we're just looking for a little bit extra. No. They had been hanging around all day looking for work to do. And so the master says, right, go and work in the vineyard. And then when evening came, after six o'clock, it says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Now, what's this? Beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. A very deliberate order that the master, the owner of the vineyard, wanted this to be done in, in a very public way. And so the first group, uh, who had only worked for one hour, came and the master paid them um, 100 pounds, one denarius. So the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them only received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. That's not fair, they said. We should have received more than them because we worked harder. And the master says something that is really important and in, in many ways the whole point of this parable. He says, are you envious 
because I am generous. Their response, I mean, at the start of the day, they were quite happy to work for 100 pounds. At the end of the day, they received it. But the master was deliberately provoking in them a response which is very telling and tells us something even about humanity. That generosity sometimes can produce very negative responses. Now, let me ask you, do you think that the vineyard owner was fair? Okay, not, I mean, there's no doubt that he was generous to those who only worked from five o'clock to six o'clock. But was he fair to give them the, uh, the same payment as those who had worked earlier? You know, if you, if you were in charge of, a, say, an office or a business, and you came in to you and said to your staff one day, I'm going to give someone a £5,000 bonus. Who will it be? It'll be you. Apparently random. I want to show you how generous I am. Would you be able to do that legally? Actually, you would be in problem, you would be in trouble if you tried to do that because you would be discriminating, you'd be accused of discriminating or showing favoritism. So, was the master or the vineyard owner right? He was generous, but was he right? Well, if he was just interested in getting his work done, if he was only concerned with hiring people so that he could get profit from the vineyard, well then, perhaps they had a point. But we have seen that that was not the owner's real motivation. I mean, his, his motivation in going out at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and even 5 o'clock, it wasn't for himself and for his own benefit. It, gave, it brought no benefit to him. There was no self-interest in him. He was interested in helping the workers. That was what he wanted to do. Not everybody, not interested in slackers, but interested in people who were prepared to work but just didn't have the opportunity. And in many ways, he, gave them, he rewarded them for what they would have done if they had had the opportunity. Now that tells us something surprising about God and about how God may one day reward people for their service. There are some people maybe who become Christians late in life. They don't have a long time to serve the Lord. Does that mean that they have no chance of getting the same reward as somebody who became a Christian, like me at eight years old, and maybe a lifetime of being involved in church? No. The Lord looks at people, and he is able to evaluate what they could have done. He, if people are willing, he looks at what they could have done if they had the opportunity. Some people are very gifted and could do great work for the Lord, but they don't have that opportunity in life. Perhaps they have to spend their whole life looking after uh, an ill uh, relative or maybe a disabled child or something like that. They could have been out on the mission field. They maybe wanted to be in the mission field to work for the Lord, but they seem tied to their local circumstances. And the Lord knows their heart. And even the little things, opportunities that they do have to serve the Lord, they do that well 
with a good heart and do it faithfully. And the Lord is able to judge and to understand what could they have done if they had had the freedom in life to take the opportunities that they dreamed about. They had the same attitude of wanting to work for the Lord, but just not the opportunity. And the Lord will be quite fair in giving people like that the same reward as someone who does go to the mission field and spends a lifetime there. So in this story of the workers in the vineyard, the master was not only generous, but he was fair because his motivation was not what he got out of it, it's what the workers got out of it. And he was rewarding the right attitude. Now, there are some people, like the first people he employed, the first group, uh, who just don't understand that selfless attitude of the vineyard owner. And so they accused him of injustice. There are some people who think that God is only interested in us because of what he gets out of it. He wants people to worship him as though that somehow increases his prestige in this world. And they just don't understand that God's entire character is to benefit other people, not himself. And his generosity to those who perhaps appear not to deserve it is to send out a message not only to them, but to provoke people who have the wrong attitude. And so that brings us to our last point, just a, a few points. Why then are there negative responses to God's generosity? Let me just remind you of the basis of the Christian gospel, based on God's generosity. I say this because a lot of religion is based on the idea that God rewards with heaven those who try to be good. At least show the right attitude but try to do good works. And if they do enough good works, perhaps to outweigh the wrong things they do, they expect that God will uh, reward them by accepting them into heaven. But here's a quick summary of the Christian gospel. How someone is saved. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Think of grace as generosity. Through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, the free gift you cannot pay for it. It's a free gift, not by works. The reason is so that no one can boast. Boasting is abhorrent to God. He doesn't want heaven to be filled with people who say, I'm here because I deserved it, because I earned it. That would not be heaven to a generous God. So let me just go through a small number of points to finish about why there are, can be negative responses to God's generosity. Well, one aspect of God's generosity, particularly in salvation, in giving people free forgiveness, is that that takes away the power of religious authorities. You know, the, some people like the religious power that comes from saying, you know, if you don't obey our church, you will end up in hell, or we'll put you out of church. That sort of threat uh, dominated uh, the kings of Europe in the Middle Ages and it led to extreme political power from uh, particularly in those days the Roman Catholic Church. But it's common in many of the world's religions. Secondly, it removes any basis for religious pride 
Remember, he said, so that no one can boast. Religious pride is a horrible thing, but it is a great motivation for some people to try to be good and to do all sorts of uh, make all sorts of sacrifices. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee said, I thank you that I am much superior to this tax collector. And he was proud of all the religious things that he did. But if forgiveness is a free gift, no one can boast. But how then can God be both generous and fair? Well, if God was merely interested in people doing good works, giving them forgiveness as a generous gift would not be fair. But God wants something much grander than that. Uh, he's looking for and he wants to develop the right qualities in people. Like that vineyard owner who hired people when he didn't need their work but he was concerned about them. Does God have to be fair in distributing his generosity? This is a really fundamental question, and I was glad David Bingham spoke last week about God is fair, and it would be worth listening to that again. If we are generous selectively, that's called favoritism or discrimination, and God constantly warns against showing favoritism, so it would be totally hypocritical, uh, if I could say that reverently, for God to show favoritism. Now, some people teach that God dispenses salvation to a select few that he chooses, uh, not because of anything that we have done, but a group called the elect. And if we were to ask God, why did you choose them and not me? God would just say, there's no reason I can give you for that. Is that favoritism? If there's no reason at all for it, uh, then it can only really be explained either by God being random or showing favoritism. And God's generosity and mercy are not given randomly. Uh, some might say, well, there's an argument in Romans where Paul says about God. God says, well, I can show mercy to whom I want. I can show mercy to whoever I want. That sounds arbitrary. And so people say, take that out of context and say, oh, that means that God can uh, choose whoever he wants and we can't question him. But if you continue the argument, we go through, uh, we reach chapter 11, uh, we find that if we ask the question, well, who does God want to show mercy to? Yes, he can do it to whoever he wants, but in keeping with his character and his fairness, he wants to show mercy to everyone. And so towards the end of that argument, it says, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. That's how God can be both generous and fair, that God makes the same generous offer to everyone. No favoritism, but everyone has the opportunity to accept his free forgiveness, the free gift of eternal life. So just to conclude, if you had any concept that God was mean, that God was ungenerous, you can dismiss it. God is utterly overflowing in his generosity, in forgiving people. When he forgives, he does it with colossal generosity, limitless generosity. 
But if we accept God's generosity, we must accept it on his terms. If we accept his forgiveness, his terms are that you allow yourself to be transformed, to become like God himself and become generous. If you don't want that, then you can't accept God's forgiveness. And that's salvation is open to everyone. Some may not accept it, but complete provision for everyone in the world down through history has been made. And those who do accept God's forgiveness on God's terms find that God starts to transform them to be like himself. They experience a whole new way of living, a whole new way of looking at the world as God himself looks at it, with no self-interest, but looking out for the good of others. So let's just close in prayer, and then I'll hand back to Richard. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your generosity, at your overflowing forgiveness, which you offer to everyone. We thank you for it. Those of us who have experienced that, again, we thank you for it, for we pray that we might Uh, learn and be transformed to be like you in showing forgiveness and generosity to others. And to someone here tonight, perhaps, who has not yet experienced that complete forgiveness, we pray that they would open their hearts, accept your free offer of forgiveness and eternal life on your terms. In Jesus' name, amen.